0: friends, I want to welcome you back to the Healthy Church Conference. It's been an encouraging time so far for uh, Tim and I. Um, it, we've been here since Friday evening, and uh, it's only been a short amount of time and uh, had the opportunity to speak to many of you. But uh, one of the things that I just want to uh, encourage you with is everything that we are talking about here uh, really revolves around Tim's first session. What a, What is the foundation of a healthy church? And that's a church that Believes in God's word and seeks to live it out. And one of the things that I found deeply encouraging in my own heart after spending some time with uh, many of you is that there seems to be a real love for the word. And I just wanted to identify that as an evidence of grace in your life. That is a breeding ground for the healthy church. So I thank God for your love for the word, for your trust in his word. And I pray that as we go through these next few sessions, it would be informed by God's word for your good and his glory. Now, just to cover what we've gone through so far, uh, Tim's talked about the church's foundation, which is a word-centered ministry. Uh, then we've talked about the church's authority, um, what we like to call elder-led congregationalism. And now we're going to talk about the church's membership. Now, one book I want to encourage all of you to read at some point is called Church Planting is for Wimps. It's a funny title. It's a book written by Mike McKinley, who's a pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church down in Virginia. And, uh, it's, it's a very easy read. I'm, you know, if you're a reader, I'm sure you can get through it in probably an hour or two. Uh, it's a testimony of his experience revitalizing a dying church. Mike was sent out from a healthy church, uh, to pastor a severely struggling church, and he tells a story of how it all went. Now, in one part of his story during the early days of his pastory, he talks about uh, walking out into the parking lot and uh, seeing a guy who would be napping in his car there every day during lunchtime. And one day, Mike found the dude outside of his car not napping, so he decided to finally approach him and make his acquaintance. And they made some small talk, and then uh, after a short little while, it turns out that the guy was a bit of a racist. Uh, He spent some time in jail. Uh, in Mike's words, based on the, the smell coming off of him, he was a fan of cheap bourbon whiskey. And so the kind of picture you get is, is a real rough guy around the edges. Now, near the end of the conversation, Mike mentioned that he was the pastor of this church. And then to Mike's surprise, this guy said, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I've been a part of your church. I'm a member of your church. I was baptized there when I was eight years old. Yep, I've been a member of Guilford Baptist Church for the last 30 years. Uh, Just to be clear, Mike has never seen this guy before in a Sunday morning service. Unfortunately, that's a problem that many churches face today. And I don't know about you, maybe you were at a church like that too. You have people who claim to be a part of your church, whether it's because they grew up there at some point in their lives, or they have parents or grandparents that go to that church, or that's uh, the church they go to on specific holidays twice a year, Easter and Christmas. I'm a Christian and I belong to Grace Bible Fellowship or Coram Deo because I go to church, that church, on the Christmas holiday. But the reality is there are some people out there who automatically assume that, and which is the big part of the reason why it's so important to have some kind of formal local church membership. And I'm talking about a formal membership to a particular localized church, Now, there are some people who like to say, I don't go to church on Sundays because I belong to the the big universal church of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, that's not how the Lord structured the New Testament church. Local church membership tells us who belongs in the church and who doesn't. But here's the thing. Even if you do belong to a particular local church church, Even if you are a member of that church, it's important that being a member actually means something to you, meaning you don't want a a church that's just filled with people who think that membership is all about filling seats in on a Sunday morning while doing nothing else. It's important to make membership meaningful. So, So that's the terminology that I want you to think about, meaningful membership. What does it mean to make membership meaningful? Again, being a part, of, a part of a church ought to mean more than just being physically present, and that's what I want to talk about primarily this morning. Now, before we get there, the first big, ques- big question is, how do you make something meaningful if you don't believe in it? In other words, you can't make membership meaningful if you don't believe that formal local church membership is, 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 is a real thing in the first place. People won't take membership seriously if they don't believe that this is something that the Bible calls us to. And that's why we need to start there first. Start with making a strong case for local church membership before we move on to talking about meaningful membership. Now, the word membership isn't something that that you'll explicitly find in a particular verse or chapter of the Bible. So the question is, does membership actually exist? But then you have to consider things like the deity of Christ or uh, the Trinity of God, the triune God. Uh, These aren't words that are explicitly used in the Bible. And so the question is, are they there? Do we believe in these things? When we think about Trinity, when we think about the deity of Christ, there are very clear teachings in the Bible that, yes, God is three in one. He is triune. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you see, even if these exact words aren't used explicitly in the Bible, it doesn't mean that the concept or the idea isn't there. In the same way, it's important to see that the concept or the idea of local church membership is there and unavoidable in the Bible, even if it doesn't specifically use the word membership. Okay, so what I want to do right now is uh, present you first with a case of local church membership, From a historical view, from a theological view, and then lastly, a biblical view. So let's start with the historical view. If we go back all the way um, to just 2,000 years ago in the the Greco-Roman world, which was the world that Jesus and the apostles were a part of, we learned that life in these cities revolved around associations and guilds or, or clubs and specific localized membership. Uh, that was just a part of the culture during the Hellenistic and Roman periods. People knew exactly which association and which, uh, which club that they were a part of. You know, I don't know if they had stuff like this, but if there was a debate club, you would know exactly who was a part of the deba- debate club. If you had a chess club, you would know exactly who's a part of the chess club. And so it's not far-fetched to think that the earliest church actually had a list of who belonged to this church and who belonged to that church. And some of the earlier documents that we have of the early church show a list of names that likely represent who was a part of the church. I mean, even just consider the Bible. When the Apostle Paul writes his letters, he, he's writing to the Corinthians in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. And there he's he's thinking about a specific group of people. He's not when he's writing about division, when he's addressing problems that are going on in the Corinthian church, he's not thinking about the, the Christians in Galatia or Philippi. He's thinking specifically about the Corinthians and their local context. And then the same is true for the Galatian church. And the same is true for the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi. So our, our history tells us something about the existence of some kind of local church membership. Secondly, a theological view. I just want you to think about this, especially as you read the the Old Testament. God has always, from the beginning of time with Abraham and then his descendants, he's always identified himself with a specific group of people that would be called God's people. You had Israel, God's covenant people, and then you basically had everyone else. And you can see this all throughout the book of Exodus, God covenanting with his people Israel, and, and this is the way that God has always related to his people through a covenant relationship. We are people of the new covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ, and one of the ways that we reflect God in this world is to, to live and to walk in covenant relationship with one another, and that's really what, what the heart of local church membership is. We reflect our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God in church membership. I'll get to, to that a little more later. So you have a historical view. You have a theological view. And most importantly, lastly, a case for local church membership from a biblical view. Now again, almost every Christian believes that the moment a person is converted, they belong to this universal, global, big C church. Meaning all, we were all members of the worldwide body of Christ made up of everyone who has repented of sin and turned to trust in Jesus. And, and that's an amazing truth to consider. Tim and I are from Toronto, but, but we can come here and joyfully call you our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But here's the question. How is the global universal church kingdom of, of, of Jesus Christ seen? How do we know that it, 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 exact, it, it exists in this world? How are unbelievers supposed to witness this new kingdom of Jesus Christ if, if it's only this spiritual thing? And that's where local church membership comes in. Small C churches. I'm talking about Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto. I'm talking about Grace Bible Fellowship here in La Crete or Coram Deo in Grand Prairie. The small C churches are a visible and tangible manifestation of the the big universal global heavenly reality. Now, Jonathan Lehman has uh, a helpful way of illustrating this in his little blue book called Church Membership. Again, I would encourage you to read that as as well. He says there that uh, the local church, metaphorically speaking, is like an embassy in a foreign country. Now I'm born and raised in Canada but my background is South Korean so I'll use Korea as an example here. When you go to Korea they have the Canadian Embassy there so it's the Canadian Embassy that is physically situated in South Korea but it represents Canada. It's it's there for Canadian citizens. As a matter of fact it abides by Canadian laws and so to trespass onto the Canadian embassy in South Korea isn't trespassing onto South Korean property. You're actually trespassing onto Canadian property. And in the same way, the local church represents the kingdom of God in this foreign world. It represents a heavenly reality. It represents Jesus Christ and it's here for Christ people. So there are many passages in the New Testament that make an excellent case for membership. So I'm going to give you four examples. First, you have the voting text. and This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 2.6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, that may be a weird place to get to the, the theme of church membership, But you have to consider this carefully. And I think Tim brought up this text uh, last night. How could a church vote to a majority on an issue unless there was a recognized total number of people? How do you get 51% when you don't have a total, a a clear total? Meaning meaning you have to have some kind of quorum, quorum to determine a minority and majority vote. It can't change all the time. So you have a voting text. Secondly, you have the discipline text. And I'm going to talk a little more about this in the second session this morning um, when we talk about corrective church discipline. But but for now, let let me ask you just to consider Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, "...if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault." If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So when someone in the church refuses to repent of sin, the the final stage in the church discipline process is to treat that person as an unbeliever, or better known, excommunicate them. But we need to be careful to pay attention to what jesus is saying specifically here because he never says anywhere that the excommunicated person has to leave the church physically okay we often think that excommunication is is banishment from the church total shunning you're not allowed to enter through those doors anymore and we never see that person again well actually the best place uh, actually, the church is the best place for that person to be because that's where they will continue to hear the gospel and the call to repentance. But that individual, even if they're physically there, is to be formally recognized as an unbeliever. That's, that's what it means when Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which in the context is, is basically saying a non-Christian. But Jesus never says anything about physically kicking this person out of the church He's merely to be recognized as an unbeliever and excluding them from taking communion, which is for Christians only, hence the word excommunion, excommunication. Now you have to consider, Jesus is talking about a formal type of exclusion, but how can you exclude someone if there isn't some kind of inclusivity? If the person is allowed to still come to the church, which they should be, how do you distinguish whether they're a part of the church or whether they're not? It can't simply be those who are physically present in the room. So there has to be some kind of inclusion for there to be this kind of formal exclusion, excommunicating them. In other words, a church can't remove a member from nothing. You have to have something. What is church membership? So that's the discipline text. Uh, Actually, we'll go here. We're going to the leadership text. Um, Hebrews 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, Tim and I are pastors at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Ontario. And one day we will both stand before the Lord and give an account to God of the souls that were entrusted into our care. The question is, are we as pastors going to be held accountable for every single Christian that has walked through our doors over the last 19 years of Grace Fellowship Church? Are we going to be held accountable, you know for that you know, that sneaky little visitor who comes in late on a Sunday morning and then leaves before everyone else? A person that we never have a, a chance to meet in a church that has 300 people visiting on a Sunday, 300 people attending on a Sunday? You see, the only way a pastor can faithfully do his job of shepherding is if there is a clear mutual understanding of who belongs to the flock. I just want you to consider literal shepherds, like actual shepherds who take care of real sheep. When you're a shepherd, you're not a shepherd of every single sheep in the world, right? A a shepherd, they, they have their own flock, those that belong to their farm, and those sheep know exactly who their shepherd is. Formal church membership clarifies those boundary markers so that pastors know who they're accountable for and Christians know who they're called to obey and submit to. Listen, I'm I'm not going to be held accountable for every single Christian in Korea. People that I don't know and people that likely I'll, I'll never meet in my life. I'm going to be held accountable for the people in my church in Toronto, and I know exactly who they are by name because we have formal church membership. Now, Tim and I have the privilege of being here and teaching uh, what we know on healthy church, but in, in one sense, really, we don't have the kind of authority over you. We're not your pastors. And so in one sense, you don't have to submit to us. You don't have to obey every direction that we give because we're not your pastors here. And so that's what local church membership does. It clarifies who the pastors are overseeing, and it clarifies who the members are, who the Christians are, and and who they're supposed to um, follow and uh, follow the, the in terms of the leadership of the shepherd. Okay, so when you bring all of these views together—a biblical view, a theological view, a historical view—what you get is a strong case. For local church membership and all these things have to be held together so that's the very first thing every church needs to establish before we move towards meaningful membership and i say that because membership isn't an option or a preference it's not just something that hardcore churches do it's instituted by god in his word for us to obey and then that brings us to the very next question How do we make meaningful church membership? Again, this is more than just believing membership is a biblical principle. It should be more than just regularly attending on a Sunday morning service and being a passive, casual observer of the church. Meaningful membership is a call to be an active doer of the word, an active doer of the word. So here are a few ways that we try to create meaningful membership in our church, okay? The very first thing is we have what we call a membership process. Now, we've had people go through our church uh, membership application process, which I'll, I'll, I'll go over in just a minute. And, and some have asked, uh, why the need for such formality? You know, why can't you just come and, and be a part of the church? Well, it's, it's actually because of what Tim taught yesterday the, the church as a whole is called to guard the membership of the church and affirm those who are true gospel confessors of our gospel confession. And the way to effectively do that so that no one just slips in unnoticed is to have a formal process into membership where we can evaluate everyone who is coming in and actually ask them, what 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 is the gospel to you? How did you come to know the Lord? Now, to be fair, this can look very different from church to church to church. So again, I'm just going to share with you how we do it in our local church context. The very first thing is we have a what we call a new members class. So everyone who has the desire of being part of Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, uh, the very first step is to come to this new members class. And, And that's where we try to put everything on the table. This is who we are as a church. This is our statement of faith. This is our philosophy of ministry. Here are our distinctives, the different ministries that we have. Um, We put everything out there and we give them a chance to ask questions. So that's just a time, again, for uh, the people to get to know who we are as a church and for us to get to know prospective new members. And if they want to be a part of the church, if they want to move forward after hearing all that, Then they move on to filling out an online application. And there they answer a few questions about themselves. Um, uh, They fill in the blanks for a couple particulars. um, They talk about their past church experience. And a big part of that is they send in their testimony of how the Lord saved them. After that, the application is uh, sent to the elders who will meet with them. Either one or two elders will meet and will talk about their testimony We'll talk about any concerns that they have or any questions that they have from the new members class. And and we'll talk about questions um, and concerns that we may have. Maybe their testimony wasn't as clear. It's like, wait, what did you mean when you said this as you were talking about the gospel? So it's just a chance for us to talk and really see, is this person a true gospel confessor of our gospel confession? Uh, Next, a report is filled out by the elder, and then it gets sent to all the rest of the elders where we'll have a discussion at our elders meeting. And if all the elders approve to move this person um, towards membership, then the applicant's testimony is sent out to a what we call a members meeting package that we send out to all of our members two weeks before a members meeting. That way they just get the chance to, to read it. They have two weeks to think about it, ask questions, talk to the person if they need to. And then at our members' meeting, the existing members vote. Again, that's how the church is to exercise its authority to um, hold, as, as they hold the keys of the kingdom. And if they're voted in, then the very last step is to take a membership covenant together, which then brings me to my uh, second point here. Um, in our church, one of the ways we try to make membership meaningful is we have what we call a membership covenant now oh, this should be a clear well-crafted biblically saturated statement about the commitment we're making to one another in this local church what a membership covenant does is clarify expectations and member responsibilities we want to make it very clear that as a member of our church you you're being called to a certain way of living that is clearly instructed in the bible not just coming out on Sunday and filling a seat. Which is why if you look close at, at, at our covenant, which um, maybe we'll, we'll send to, uh, to Rob or Lauren there so that you can take a look at and consider. If you look at our covenant, it has a bunch of footnotes cited throughout the whole document. And that's important to notice because we want people to see that our covenant to one another um, isn't this abstract or, or extra-biblical thing. What we're calling our people to is what the Bible calls Christians to, a commitment to live in such a way that, it, that, that is worthy of the gospel. So I don't remember it all right now, but just to give you a little excerpt from our, our uh, membership covenant, we promise um, to walk in Christian love and to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, even to the laying down of our life for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and these brothers to walk circumspectly in the world, to be subject to biblical discipline which seeks my restoration. Again, these are all things that the Bible talks about. And you see, a mutually agreed-upon membership covenant becomes a ground of unity in the life of the church. It becomes an exhortation to obey God's word and a clear boundary marker of who you're covenanting to which are the other members who have made this covenant as well. When you read through the Bible, the Bible has a lot of what's called one another commands. Commands to love one another. Commands to serve one another. Commands to carry one another's burden. But you have to think, realistically, we need to have some kind of focused direction to apply these commands and live it out in our lives. Okay, so, so let's uh, take, for example, Galatians chapter six verse two. Paul clearly writes, "Bear one another's burdens." That's command. It's not a suggestion. You are to bear one another's burdens. But consider this: realistically, is it humanly, impo- is it humanly possible to obey the command with every single Christian in the world? No, right? There's no way I can know every Christian in the world, let alone the complexities of the burden that they carry in their lives and how to effectively help them and bear their burden. So the question is then, who are the one another's in the Bible referring to? Because Paul couldn't literally have met every single Christian in the world. Well, primarily it's those that it's, it's those who belong to your local church those who know you and you can affirm as true gospel confessors. And that's what membership, our, our membership covenant does. It, it clarifies our expectations, it clarifies our responsibilities, but it also clarifies who it is that we're committing to serve and to um, obey God's word. When I hear the command to serve one another, it's for people like Tim primarily and the members of our church. So membership covenant binds us together, and it calls us to action. The very third third thing is we seek to cultivate a culture of doing good works. Now, I love this little phrase by Ed Welch used in his book, Side by Side. He says of every Christian, you are needy and you are needed. Now, as humble Christians, we always like to talk about that first part, right? We're very needy people. We need the church. We need our brothers and sisters. But something about saying that you're needed uh, tugs at our pride a little bit. But it's true. Every Christian is a needy Christian, and every Christian is a needed Christian in the life of the church And you need to understand that as a Christian, you're both needy people and you're needed, meaning that we all have a part to play in the life of the church. The Lord loves to use his people in order to accomplish his purposes. He loves to use even the weak and foolish things of this world. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has redeemed for himself a people who would be zealous for good works. Consider how many times the words good works are used in Titus. It says in Titus chapter 2 verse 14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus chapter 3 verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Titus 3.14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Titus is a pretty short book, three chapters. And in this short book, Paul mentions the importance of good works three times. And as a leader of the church, Titus has the responsibility to cultivate a culture of Christians committed to doing good works. Now, in our church, we have what uh, we call host teams. And it's where when you become a member of our church, you're automatically positioned into a host team. Host simply stands for honoring one another, serve together, or honoring one another, serving together. Um, And a host team serves about once a month. They either serve as ushers, they either serve as front door greeters. We, we have a gym uh, in, inside the building, so um, we have gym door greeters, we have parking lot attendants, and so on. And the reason why we do that, the reason why we put every single member into a host team is because we are trying to create opportunities for our members to serve the church with the hope that it would help create a culture of honoring one another and serving together. Charles Spurgeon, who was also known as the Prince of Preachers in the 19th century, had some great things to say about a working church. So I'm just going to read for you what he said here. What odd notions people have of joining the church. Many a young man joins a rifle corps and there he is. When he joins the church, where is he? We have the distinguished honor of having the names of many young gentlemen on our books. But where are they? What are they doing? They think it enough that they have joined the church, and they don't think that anything more is required. Why? when, When they join a literary institute or anything of that kind, they do so for the purpose of doing something and obtaining an advantage from it. And I say to such young men, do you believe the Christian church to be a farce? If you do so, we could even dispense with your names. If you do not believe the Christian church is a farce, then show that you don't by working so far as you can in the cause of Christ. Oh, but we hear some say, I could do nothing, though I were to try it. Well, I would reply, I would not have liked to say that you are. There is not a nettle in the corner of the churchyard without its virtues. There is not a spider in the world but has its web to spin. And there is no man in the world but has something to do for the cause of Christ, which nobody else can do but himself. I don't think it is possible for you to be powerless. Can't you speak to someone? Can't you do something in your own, in your own place as a member of the church? Oh, to get a working church. The German churches, you'll appreciate this, when our dear friend Mr. Onkin was alive, always carried out the rule of asking every member, what are you going to do for Christ? And they would answer that down in a book. And one thing that was required of every member was that he should continue doing something for the Savior. We have a good friend in Scotland who works in the schemes. The schemes is kind of like the, uh, the projects in the U.S. And I remember this brother, McConnell He's the executive director of a missionary organization called 20 Schemes in Scotland. And he told me about a guy who uh, came to Christ. And the Schemes in Scotland is a really rough place. A lot of drug abuse, a lot of other kinds of abuse. I'm talking about like hard, hard drugs. And this person was saved out of this crazy world. He didn't have a ton of skill. He didn't have uh, a ton of competencies. Uh, but he found, finally found a job. Um, cleaning toilets for a living. And he said, (laughs) when you meet this guy, he would be the happiest person in the world. And he said, I clean toilets for Jesus Christ. What can you do for Jesus? Are you completely powerless? Can you not do something, even if you can't do everything? This is a great question to ask yourself. What kind of good works are you currently doing for the good of your church and for the glory of Jesus Christ? Good works aren't only for the pastors and the leaders and the steering committee of a church. It's a call to every member. Jesus Christ, if he has saved you, he has saved you to be a people who are zealous for good works. So you want to seek to cultivate a culture of doing good works. Lastly, I'll say this, you want to create, uh, cultivate a culture of interpersonal soul care. And I wanted to distinguish this because it, it, it does kind of go together with point three. But, but I wanted to make sure that we understand that good works are, are more than just serving on something like a, a host team or, or making meals for a fellowship, lunch, or giving someone a ride to church. Now, now please don't get me wrong when I say this. Those are definitely good works, but it goes far beyond that to members actually caring for one another's souls on a, on a spiritual heart level. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now this little passage here tells us that the work of ministry for building up the church isn't only the pastor's job. It's not only for the elders. All the saints have a part to play. And that includes everything from serving to evangelizing to taking care of one one another's soul. If discipleship and soul care are happening only from the pastor's to its members, then the pastor is failing in his ministry but if the church is made up of this beautiful web of discipleship members ministering ministering to, to members, sisters taking care of other sisters brothers praying for brothers when ministry is happening like that then there is a mark of a healthy church where membership means something so being a Officially, a part of a local church as a member matters because that is how the Lord structured his New Testament church to be. Being a member of a local church ought to mean so much more than just attending a Sunday and filling in a seat. My dear friends, I believe you know this well, that there is a lot of work to be done. There are people to serve, people to pray for, people to counsel, people to love and encourage every single week. There are people sitting right beside you who are broken and who need a faithful brother and sister who's going to pray for them and care for them and love them. And that can't all be done by the pastor alone. If you're a Christian, then the Lord calls you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, where Jesus came and gave up his life to love and serve his people. So here's my exhortation to you. Be a member and serve your church. Let me pray. Father, I pray for Grace Bible Fellowship, for Coram Deo, for all the other churches that are represented here, that they would be filled with your people who are zealous for good works. We pray that membership would mean so much more than just people coming in on a Sunday, filling in a seat, not talking to anyone, living an isolated life. But I pray, Lord, I pray that membership would be meaningful. I pray that there would be a faithful representation of Christ and the things that are important to our King. So help us, O Lord. Help us to first understand membership as instructed in your word, and then help us to live it out in such a way that brings glory to your great name.